This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Returning to Eden, a field guide for the spiritual journey. Returning to Eden is a book by Heather Hamilton for people who resonate with aspects of Christianity but struggle with the coherence of its claims. After having a mystical experience that shattered her evangelical beliefs, Heather Hamilton found herself on the journey that every true spiritual seeker ultimately takes. The highest truths that set us free are hidden in places that most people are not looking. Returning to Eden re-examines the Bible stories of childhood and opens them up as symbolic maps into the inner world. Stories like Jonah and the Whale, the parting of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, and the Virgin Birth are illuminated with penetrating depth and intellectual integrity. Faith is no longer a white-knuckled grip on implausible beliefs, but a relaxation into a deep inner knowing. You can purchase Returning to Eden by Heather Hamilton at Amazon.com or at ReturningToEden.com. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're talking about Anne Sexton's poem, Jesus Walking, and how it helps us re-envision the humanity of Jesus. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. I have to say that one of my favorite things to discuss with people, especially when we're talking about newer Testament texts, is helping people think about the humanity of Jesus, thinking of him as more than just divine. Mm. My favorite literary work of all time for that project is Nikos Kazantzakis's The Last Temptation of Christ. Its main project is humanizing Jesus. The novel really caused a furor when it came out. And the same thing happened, probably a bigger furor, when Martin Scorsese adapted it to film back in the 80s. I have to say, with the film, I wonder how many of the people who came out to protest the movie actually saw the movie, because it works really hard to humanize Jesus. And as Kazantzakis saw it, and as Scorsese saw it, Jesus's biggest temptation was to live a normal life, to forget his critique of religion, to forget his political disruptions, and just be a husband and father. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I think of the biblical scholars who appreciate Kazantzakis's work and how it's kind of edgy for them to embrace his work. And all kinds of conversations come up in my mind in terms of why maybe conservative Christians would have protested such a film because it is vying for or maybe trying to talk about, you know, the fact that Jesus put on pants in the morning. And <laughs> well, I am looking forward to this conversation. And I decided looking through the three different passages that relate to the poem, I decided to go with Luke's version. So we're talking about temptation or some version, some conversation related to the temptation of Jesus, I guess. So I'm reading Luke's version, which starts at the beginning of chapter four of Luke, 
And this is, I'm going to read the whole thing. So Luke 4, verses 1 to 14. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding region. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. Thank you, Jennifer. Yes. I appreciate hearing that. And before I read the Anne Sexton poem, Jesus Walking, could you say a little bit about traditional interpretations of this passage, or perhaps I should say conventional interpretations of this passage? Yes. Let me see if I can keep this brief and I think to the point that you're thinking of, although I might not be reading your mind accurately. You probably are. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that I think of is people tend to see this exchange as being about proving why Jesus is divine. He is he's being tested in this sneaky way by the devil or by Satan, and he is coming out victorious. And the focus is on this idea of Jesus as divine, Jesus as divine, which comes in part out of a misunderstanding of some of the language that's used here. The reference to the the character testing him, calling him son of God, that doesn't actually mean divine being, but a lot of people hear that in the label son of God and understandable. That's one of the things I address in the chapter, in Permission Granted, in the chapter on the Gospels. But so, you know, we have this, what I think of in terms of the traditional ways of engaging this, Jesus comes out as victorious over this nasty, evil character, and Jesus is divine and all this great stuff. When really what's more appropriate, I think, is to see this as a necessary component of the gospel story. And I think in the first century, listeners might have heard it a bit more along those lines. This is important for the listener to know that Jesus is up for the task ahead of him. In this sense, devil, the devil or Satan or whatever the character is called is actually a really important character, playing an important role 
And I like that my friend, actually, Peterson Toscano, pointed this out to me, that at the end of this engagement, the character who has been testing, not not pushing in a nasty, evil way, but just showing Jesus's mettle, right? He he turns to God and says, he passed, you know, he's good to go. And I, I find that kind of a helpful way to reframe the way I think about this exchange. Was that part of what you were thinking of, well, at least? I was thinking about that. I was also thinking of all the times students have said to me, and I'm talking about secularist students. Sure. Who have said to me, okay, we really appreciate reading it from a literary perspective. We also want to know what conservatives think about when they read this story. Mm. And that's a worthwhile thing to know. And when you spoke about this being an archetypal testing type of scene. I also think about the heroic narrative and I think about Odysseus and the exactly. episode with the Cyclops and the episode with the Lotus Eaters. And that's how heroic narrative works. I'm not saying that the Gospels are a heroic narrative. I think there's heroic narrative in them, but I yes. realize they are their own genre. But it's very similar to this episodic testing that you see in other kinds of heroic narratives. That's right. And that's what I think is helpful reframing. And I think that many, many conservative or traditional folks don't think of think of these as utterly separate. And so I think that's a helpful lens into this. <laughs> so let's hear Anne Sexton's Jesus Walking. And maybe before I launch into it, I also want to remind listeners that in Jennifer's book, Permission Granted, Jennifer has a whole chapter called Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? I don't know if I could think of any other intellectual slash spiritual slash religious inquiry that has been sustained longer and battled over more intensely than who is Jesus? <laughs> yeah. What is he like? How do we talk about him? So let's go now from the gospel to Anne Sexton. So here is a poet's engagement with the figure of Jesus. Jesus Walking When Jesus walked in the wilderness, he carried a man on his back. At least, it had the form of a man. A fisherman, perhaps, with a wet nose. A baker, perhaps, with flour in his eyes. The man was dead, it seems. And yet he was unkillable. Jesus carried many men, yet there was only one man, if indeed it was a man, there in the wilderness. All the leaves reached out with their hands, but Jesus went on by. The bees beckoned him to their honey, but Jesus went on by. The boar cut out its heart and offered it. But Jesus went on by with his heavy burden. The devil approached and slapped him on the jaw, and Jesus walked on. The devil made the earth move like an elevator, and Jesus walked on. The devil built a city of whores, each in little angel beds, and Jesus walked on with his burden. For forty days, for forty nights, Jesus put one foot in front of the other, 
and the man he carried, if it was a man, became heavier and heavier. He was carrying all the trees of the world, which are one tree. He was carrying forty moons, which are one moon. He was carrying all the boots of all the men in the world, which are one boot. He was carrying our blood, one blood. To pray, Jesus knew, is to be a man carrying a man. What is something that you notice about this poem? I know that the first time we read this poem together, it kind of bugged you that the wilderness that Sexton is envisioning here, it is not the same type of wilderness as exhibited in the story. There's a desert wilderness right in the gospel narrative, the, the episode of Temptation. And I remember we read it and you said, this is not that same type of wilderness. This is much more of a forest. Yes. Yes. Just on the basic initial reaction, I that was my response. And I thought, oh, this this frustrates me because she's doing something that she doesn't understand. Or maybe she did fully understand and it's okay. You know, I think that in the biblical context, there's a lot of history associated with wilderness wandering. And it is, in that biblical context, a desert. It is wandering in a barren, arid, space-for-thinking region that is different, although not utterly different, but it is just very different than what I think of in terms of walking in the wilderness and in a lush forest, and there's a lot of people that many people like to do long walks or hikes, and we'll, we'll hike the entire Appalachian Trail. And it's not just to say you did it, but it's also kind of a meditative practice, you know. So I do think that those two different types of wildernesses serve similar points, similar, you know, uh, spiritual practice kinds of things. But I do think it's also worth pointing out that she's thinking of this differently than the biblical author was thinking of it. Yes. It seems to me that she's taking the story and translating it to an English or American context and imagining a another landscape. What's consistent in it is the idea of temptation. And I'm looking at the specific temptations, the leaves, the honey, the boar, different kinds of temptation, but that theme of temptation is the same. Well, I certainly have more to say about the poem, but I know that we are headed into a little break. Yes. And yeah, folks, please stick around when we come back from this little break. We'll dive into some of the language, talk more about the poetry and talk about the human realities in connection with temptation or testing. Yes. Thank you. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for Wild Olive. I've got a few questions for you about what's been talked about today. First, Jesus. He's been depicted many ways over the years. Which depictions are you most comfortable with? Which ones are you not? Does the humanization of a divine figure make them more relatable? Does it take away any power from their divinity? Or does it add more power to it? Lastly, with Jesus and the devil. Maybe listen back to that story from Luke chapter 4 again. What does it mean to be divine? How do those facets apply to Jesus? Remember, there are no wrong answers. In fact, there doesn't have to be an answer. Just something to think about. 
Now, back to the show. Welcome back. Let's jump back into this. I'm eager to hear more about what you have to say, Jean. What is it that intrigues you or or led you to want to bring this poem to our listeners? I'm intrigued by the ambiguities in the poem. And I will talk about them in a moment. First, I just want to say to everyone listening that no one makes meaning out of a poem instantly, not the first time around. The normal experience of reading a poem, even for an English professor, is to read through it and feel a sense of puzzlement, maybe not with every poem, but certainly with modernist poetry, and that's the kind of poem that this is. Sexton is a modernist poet, and this poem contains a lot of ambiguities, and I'm intrigued by ambiguity. I don't feel frustrated because I cannot nail down every single meaning. I like it when I'm intellectually and emotionally, spiritually challenged, and I don't know everything immediately about a poem. I like that process of wrestling with the poem. So some of the ambiguities that I really appreciate, I like this business, Jesus carried many men, yet there was only one man, if indeed it was a man. The poem is purposely ambiguous. What? Yes. And I actually, I want to ask you what, after reading it several times, what do you make of that? Is that a way of saying that Jesus is standing in for all of humanity? Do you think that's what Sexton is trying to suggest? Or is she? I don't know. I don't think she is trying to suggest that. I don't think she's trying to suggest anything that would feel like familiar dogma. I think she's trying to do two things at once. And let's just stick with those three lines. Jesus carried many men, yet there was only one man, if indeed it was a man. So there's purposeful ambiguity, which makes the poem feel dreamlike. And I think what the poem wants to do is to have us lay down our need for logical consistency, that Aristotelian logic, A cannot be A and not A at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a great, yes, reference. Thank you. And actually actually, can be. (laughs) And we're in a different mode of knowing here. It can be a man and, hmm, is it a man? There's this doubt and tenuousness in there that I think, (laughs) speaking of Aristotelian logic and speaking of the Western epistemological protocols that grow out of that. It's like we run from ambiguity like we run from the plague, right? We want to know exactly how does it work? How do things work? Yes, what does it mean? Yes, what does it mean? And this poem defeats that. I, I mean, I will say more about what I think it means in a little bit. But I also wanted to say, again, for anyone listening, Maybe the question that we're asking isn't so much what does the poem mean? I mean, maybe we get to that eventually, but maybe what we want to ask is, what do you notice about the poem? Uh, what is the poem asking us to notice? I noticed the ambiguity. I noticed the departure from Aristotelian logic, from that rationality that dominates our thinking in cultures shaped by the scientific paradigm. And there are other kinds of ambiguities. Put the man he carried, if it was a man, 
He was carrying all the trees of the world, which are one tree. He was carrying 40 moons, which are one moon. So there's this, like, kind of a unitary perception. Like almost a Taoist or Buddhist kind of a concept there. Yes. And, And it's this recognition of a certain plenitude, but also consistency and unity in the world of phenomena at the same time, carrying all the boots of all the men in the world, which are one boot, this tension between the many and the one. He was carrying our blood, one blood, to pray Jesus knew is to be a man, carrying a man. So I don't think there's anything that the poem is pushing that is dogmatic. Jesus works like this. That's not the type of thinking and feeling that there is in the poem. The poem, to me, is deeply reverential because it's a very authentic engagement with the figure of Jesus. And I find that to be genuine. And I also notice, and now I feel like I'm really talking a long time, so let me just wrap it up here. And we've talked about this before, that there's a way that the poem calls out the materiality of the story. And there are pieces from other gospel moments, the fisherman, a fisherman with a wet nose. That is such a material, tiny material detail, a baker, perhaps with flour in his eyes. So I think the poet is really working to take this character, this Jesus character, the Jesus idea, the Jesus experience, and relate it to really concrete material realities and, and real people. Even that line, the devil approached and slapped him on the jaw. That's, that's, it's, it defamiliarizes the gospel story. I think that's another thing that poetry, good poetry does for us. It, it defamiliarizes what we think is familiar. And I think this poem is defamiliarizing Jesus so that we're returned to a kind of wondering, like, what was he all about? All of that teaching and all of the, sacrifice and the determination to stay on mission. Like to me, that's really the essence of temptation is if you have a calling, you're called to do something, there will always be a temptation to just either enjoy some pleasant thing that the world offers, some leaves or some honey or something really tasty from a boar. I don't go with the heart. I do sausage, right? That's what, if I'm going to do pork, I'm going to do sausage. Um, but to go for some pleasurable thing, um, and it, it can call us off mission, right? And there's a million things that that can mean. That's right. I know that we need to move on here in a minute to another segment of our thinking about this combination. But I also, before we do, I'd love to know your thoughts on those last four lines. He was carrying our blood, one blood, to pray Jesus knew is to be a man carrying a man. And I, before I, I mean, I, I also want to comment, right? I do wonder if Anne might have said something different were she living a little bit later. Um, Because man is very male to me and not generic, but maybe she did mean it generically. And I don't know either way, but I, so I just wanted to, to highlight that for me. I, I want to go, I want to think of that as a person, not just a male, 
But either way, what is it? I'm curious, genuinely, because <laughs> I'm 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 torn. I don't really know. This is interesting language to me, and I know that the language of talking about blood within typical or or traditional Christian context, the the idea of blood usually connects people to this idea of atonement for better and for worse, I will say for now. So he was carrying our blood, one blood. He, to, to pray is to carry. Um, I have some thoughts about that, but I am genuinely curious what you think. Yeah. Um, first, I want to say I agree with you that this word man here, I don't think that it means only males. I do think it's kind of like when old-fashioned people say mankind, mm-hmm. when they mean mm-hmm. humankind or mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So I do think it's meant to be a person. And I guess I want to, I'm inclined to take each of those stanzas separately. So the very last stanza to pray Jesus knew is to be a person carrying a person. What I like about those last two lines and what I think those lines are gesturing at is the idea that prayer is service. That things that we call prayer or worship, there are these conventional meanings that we associate with those words. But the poem is suggesting that What worship really is, or what prayer really is, is service to another. And even in the simplest acts of service, we have to, we sacrifice, right? If if you're going to serve another, you you sacrifice. At the very least, you sacrifice your self-interest. You set aside whatever your primary concerns are. You might set aside a number of pleasures to be able to serve another person. And it's identifying that heart for service and commitment to service as the central thing that Jesus knew. So I think Which, that's, yeah, a different take. Go ahead. Please jump well, in. Well, I do, t- I do too. And I, I, I think it's refreshing, but it's also, you know, again, for many people coming out of what we've been told to think about Jesus as is this, he came to save us, and that means he died for us, and that means this, and this, and this, and he was, he conquered the devil and death and sin. And, and so, again, this language of even in the midst of his ultimate temptation, right? Fasting for 40 days, good grief. Anyone's going to be at their wit's end, and he manages to to stay focused on his mission or whatever, right? But bringing in the humanity of that, that even in the midst of that moment, it's about people. It's about attending to and caring for one another. Yes. And those lines, he was carrying our blood, one blood, Mm -hmm. they really defeat the formulaic thinking that comes with, and and I sing it, like in church, I sing it all the time, nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? This formulaic thinking about the blood, blood washing a person clean, that atonement theory, penal substitutionary atonement theory. Yeah. The poem really defeats that formulaic thinking. Yes. And one interpretation of the suffering 
Jesus, the Jesus on the cross, the bleeding Jesus, the humiliated Jesus. One piece of thinking that I've heard that I, that I really like is that it's a kind of an archetype for suffering. I mean, it's suffering writ large, that particular story, but in much less dramatic ways, we all really suffer. There's a, it's like, in Shakespeare, in King Lear, there's the line, nature is red in tooth and claw. Not just meaning that animals kill each other and it's hard to survive out there, but that life is a really fierce battle. Like you get knocked around, you get bruised. Metaphorically speaking, life draws blood. It wounds you. And I think the poem is suggesting that there's something about the way that Jesus suffered voluntarily, accepted suffering, accepted the wounding, and somehow lived again after the wounding, despite the wounding, that there's an archetype in there. And I think this this idea of his blood is, is our blood, that there's a way in which his story suggests this participation, that we all participate in the world's wounding, let's say. And I think that's what the poem is gesturing toward, but not in clear language, in in the language of dream and poetry. I like that. I like that suggestion. Thank you. I think we need to segue into our our next segment. So stick around. We have a few more thoughts to share about this poem and the humanity of Jesus that it points us to. So, Jennifer, we started out with you talking a bit about conventional interpretations of the temptation story, and and then we looked at the poem as an invitation to more expansive thinking about the idea of temptation and about the idea of Jesus. So I'm curious if you have any new insights that the poem's invitation offers to you. What strikes you this time around? <laughs> well, actually, I need to back up just a little bit because there was one more thing I wanted to point out about this gospel passage that I think in part I am, I've, you know, I've made it a practice to try to pay attention differently than I used to. Um, of course, for many years I've been doing that, but I also think that this kind of a poem helped me to hone in on it. And so I'm not sure actually which came first, if I was noticing these things or if your this poem in particular helped me to notice this. But I want to highlight that as we talk about some of the materiality of both the scripture and what the poem helps us think about, what they both help us think about, um, I think a lot about the materiality of Jesus's example for people. So not, and I don't mean in the way that Jesus is executed at the end of his story and then is resurrected according to the stories. I mean in something like this as an example for believers. And one of the things that I'm trying to get out here is his example of 
it's a character testing him, seeing how he's going to respond, right? Um, and his response is with scripture. And he's quoting out of context. <laughs> and even the, the devil or Satan at the end is quoting scripture at him out of context. And he quotes back at him out of context. And we have this little battle going on. And you know, Gene, I don't know if you're chuckling about the same thing I'm thinking of, but this is this is actually a problematic example for me of of a way that Jesus is depicted in the first century that has become a problem within Christian communities that people quote out of context as if that does it as if it's in God's word here's a line I'm going to throw it at you and that trumps anything else you're going to say and then well the devil's like I can play that game too so here we go and both of them are quoting out of context. Neither of them get to win. And this is not me trying to challenge the importance of Jesus for people of faith. This is me trying to say something about the scriptures themselves and the fact that it was a very powerful example for me that I didn't question. I actually emulated for many years. If you can quote part of scripture, God's word to humans, that's more powerful than anything else. And I I do find that a little bit problematic. So I want yeah I wanted to highlight that. Um, and I think about yes proof texting it doesn't it doesn't hold a whole lot of water for me. But at the same time I want to acknowledge that there are reasons why Christians do this, right? I mean Jesus does it here at a moment of testing and he's proven to to come through well. Because in light of it all. And others do it in other passages. And Jesus is shown to be doing it, or the Matthew in particular does it quite a bit to talk about who Jesus is. So I think that it's important to note when Christians do this, they have a good reason for doing it. It's been modeled for them. But I think there's also a way to step back from this and say, okay, <laughs> um, I'd rather look at the fact that he was at wit's end and he found a way to focus and came through perhaps, right? Um, instead of the specific way he, he manages to defeat his foe, if you will, in this exchange. Um, but I think what I keep coming back to, and I don't know how long this will be the case for me, any poem that helps me to shift to thinking of the human Jesus this is this is still helpful for me. I've been trying to do this for years, but I still find it helpful thinking about not just in you know this this language that he was there for forty days, um, he fasted according to the story, right, and then and then someone comes to him and challenges him, and he comes out having done just fine. I, I find it helpful to think about specific physical um, things in the way the poem does that's different from the physical challenges or the physical temptations that are listed in this story. So I don't know, maybe it's just that I, I find, you know, the bees beckoned him to their honey. That's a temptation or a distraction, perhaps, right, from his journey that I can relate to. And, or even, you know, I think about the work that I'm currently trying to do, and it is easy to get distracted 
by other people's job work and what they're interested in. And when they ask me to join them in their work, that's a really understandable distraction. Like I find it valuable, but it's not my work. And so that's a, I'm constantly trying to remind myself to stick with my work, not support, you know, not participate in others so much. So I think that's what this poem does for me is it, it connects to things in daily life that I can relate to a bit better. And then that for me makes me think about Jesus in a more human way. I'm not shutting out the divine element for people in that. I'm simply saying, I find that really helpful to think of him as a human going through these things. I do too. I, going back to the business about proof texting and dueling scripture. It's like dueling pianos, right? Dueling scripture. And you hang around Christians long enough and you're going to hear the dueling pianos of scripture. (laughs) It says this, and it says this, it says this over here, but yeah, it says this over here. So the way that I think about using scripture and the way that I like to use it as someone who identifies as Christian is I think the the engagement with scripture, being in conversation with scripture, I think is something that Jesus followers, and, and there are other, you know, obviously other people, Jewish people share the Hebrew Bible with Christians who appropriated the Hebrew Bible and made it their Old Testament, so to speak. And so there's more than one religious community that uses some of these scriptures as fodder for reflection, I think. Yes. And I think that what the passage from Luke suggests to me is this effort to be in dialogue with scripture. And I think it's almost inevitable, just because language is sequential, that you'll focus on one thing and you won't be thinking about something else. I actually think the more we can hold multiple parts of different stories in tension together, the better we do. I think scripture is made to be kaleidoscopic so that you're kind of looking, you're getting this view that has lots and lots of different tiny pieces and you're trying to look at the whole. What is the image made by the whole? I like to use it that way. And I agree with you that humanizing Jesus, I think, is probably the only way to attempt to, I'm not saying that you're trying to be a Jesus follower, but I am trying to be a Jesus follower. And the only way that I could possibly try to do that is by trying to understand what this ancient, ancient story could possibly mean for me. Like, what does the idea of resisting temptation mean for me? I'm going to tell you, I mean, something funny is that I don't eat bread or honey. Literally, I don't. Every now and again, I do, but (laughs) I don't live by bread anymore, darn it, because I eat a low carb. And Uh, what and why, right? And it could be very mundane. Obviously, I don't have a grand mission like Jesus had a really grand (laughs) mission. My mission is not grand in avoiding carbohydrates, but (laughs) I'm on a mission. There's a goal, right? And certain things need to be turned down. And now I I gave such a silly example that I feel like I should give a slightly less silly example. But you know this too. If you want to write a book, you have to say no to Netflix, 
Right. 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 And you might even have to say no to exercise. I mean, sometimes if I'm working on deadline, I'd really like to be out riding my bike. Like there's a very good, uh, there's a leaf. The leaf is beckoning me. The honey is beckoning me. I want to go out. I want to go outside and play. That's what I want to do. But if you're on deadline and you have to finish a book or an article, if you're going to stay on mission, you have to say no to so many things. And I'm not the most politically brave person. I, I'm not. I don't do a lot of things that require political bravery. Um, as you know, a majority of my spiritual formation took place in a Quaker meeting. I'm and I'm still a Quaker at heart. Well, so many people in the Quaker meeting. I remember um, there were always Quakers going down to the School of the Americas and linking arms and blocking the road. And for anyone who might not know, the School of the Americas is where Americans trained um, dictators and soldiers to counter insurrections. Um, They would teach torture techniques. The CIA teaches torture techniques, interrogation techniques, and Quakers would go do that. That takes a lot of political courage. You might go to jail. You'll be dragged off to jail. You, If you're going to go and participate in a protest like that, you're not going to be with your family. You might miss something that's going on with your family. You're certainly going to miss Netflix. You're not going to watch Queen <laughs> Charlotte. <laughs> right. Uh, and and I'm, a, I'm a baby when it comes to abstaining from things that I find tempting so there's no way I could ever do something like participate in a protest where I might go to jail. I avoid okay. jail, right? Okay. Okay. A lot of Quakers don't. That's a huge mm-hmm. sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I think this story is about that. And I think the Anne Sexton poem is about that too. Like what are you yes. what are you willing to have on your back? Yes. What are you willing to carry on your back and for what reason? That's right. I agree. I think that is a beautiful way to, to sum up what she's saying. What are you willing to be carrying? And that is what it is to pray, right? And that is what Jesus is doing as he's being tested, I think, in the story on some level, is his words, our words, is our way to, of praying in the midst of this being tested. Is he up for, is he up for the challenge ahead, Right. Yeah. And I like turning that question to us, too. What are you willing to carry on your back? Who are you willing to carry on your back? Who needs to be carried? Absolutely. And I think that is what I love so much about this poem and others that you've brought to me is it does it makes it easier for me, at least, to think about seeing myself in that character, Jesus as compared to seeing Jesus as utterly separate and different from us because he did this thing and because he was executed and raised, right? I, all things that are part of Christian beliefs that I'm not here to challenge. That is not my point. I think there's just something very powerful in seeing his humanity as the same as my humanity. And that was something I, I didn't see for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, shall we leave our listeners with some questions? Ooh. Yes, I think that's a great idea. So here's a question for you, listener. What's your mission? What are you on mission for? 
could be big, could be small. Not all missions are big, but what what are your missions? What are you on mission for? And what's tempting you away from that? Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jean. This has been a lovely exchange. Thanks for listening to episode 11 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please hit subscribe and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. You can ask Jennifer or Jean a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.